Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's the Ancients on History Hit. I'm Tristan Hughes, your host, and in today's episode, where we promised we'd get part two out quick and we have delivered, because this is the second part of our mega episode all about the well-known infamous name of ancient history, Attila the Hun. Our guest once again is Professor Hyun Jin Kim from the University of Melbourne, and we're going to be kicking off where we left Attila, he is just absolutely devastated the Balkans of the Eastern Roman Empire and he's soon going to turn his attention west where he will have a big confrontation with one of his greatest rivals, the figure of Aetius. Jin Kim can tell the story much better than I can so without further ado, here he is to continue the story of Attila. Okay, Hyunjin. Attila, he has had this massive victory, destructive victory in the east of the Roman Empire. Why does he now turn his attention west? Okay, so in order to understand why this happens, we need to understand the person of Aetius. Aetius is a mystery because we don't really know anything about his origins. His father supposedly came from the province of Scythia. This is a Roman province, but... uh, This was a province full of non-Romans. So it is very unclear as to whether Aetius was fully Roman or not. Maybe he was, maybe he was not. But uh, very early on in his career, in his early 20s, we find him accompanying King Alaric of the Visigoths in the Balkans. Was he a hostage? Or had he actually joined the Visigoths at that point? Who knows? And then after a couple of years under Alaric, Aetius leaves the Visigoths and then enters Hunnic service, and he stays with the Huns for an unspecified amount of time. The next time that we hear about him is in 424 AD. So that's almost 16 years later. So presumably, during those 16 years, he has been serving the Huns and had been steadily rising in the Hunnic hierarchy. 
Now, he seems to have been treated by the Huns as sort of the Roman expert. So there were many Roman defectors who were serving the Hunnic kings as bureaucrats, and Aetius was presumably one of them. And in 424 AD, in the Western Roman Empire, a usurper by the name of John tries to take the imperial throne in opposition to the nominee of the Eastern Roman Emperor. So this was somebody who did not belong to the Theodosian dynasty that was ruling the Roman Empire at the time. And because he did not have any military muscle to speak of, John turns to the Huns. And he manages to get the attention of the Hunnic king Ruga via Aetius. And so he, uh, the usurper John grants Aetius a court title, a sort of a palace position of some kind. And in return for this, and presumably hefty tribute to the Hun king, he is promised Hunnic support. But before that support arrives, he is killed by an army uh, sent by the Eastern Roman Emperor. But then Aetius shows up in Italy with an enormous Hunnic army, 60,000 strong. And uh, the Romans are in trouble. So they pay off the Huns, and then uh, they manage to placate uh, the Huns by making Aetius the governor of Gaul. So Aetius is made uh, Magister Militum of Gaul, or the commander of all Roman forces in Gaul. Now, this was an empty title, because at this time, much of Gaul, other than the southeastern corner, was controlled by all kinds of barbarian armies that were marauding in the region. There were also Roman rebels, or Gallo-Roman rebels called the Bacaudae, who basically controlled much of the north. There were Alans around Orléans, that area. There were Franks. There were Burgundians. There were Visigoths. The place was complete anarchy. So the Romans didn't really control this area, but told Aetius that you can have it, basically. And uh, this was a perfect opportunity for Aetius. So he enters Gaul, northern Gaul, with an army, but uh, not the Roman army, of course. He enters uh, Gaul with a Hunnic army. And with this Hunnic army, he defeats all of these sort of uh, barbarian tribes that are marauding in Gaul. And he also suppresses the rebellion of the Bagaudai. And he effectively makes himself ruler of Gaul. And then after he secured his position, he sends back most of his Hunnic troops back to his patron, the Hun king Ruga. And then he oversteps his authority. So he decides to take over the rest of the Roman Empire for himself. So he tries to march into Italy to take it over. But uh, he is defeated by another Roman warlord called uh, Bonifacius. Right? He was the governor of uh, Roman Africa, who has made his way back to Italy. And uh, he is defeated. Right? So, so Aetius is defeated and he bolts immediately to Pannonia, which is then controlled by the Huns, and uh, begs his uh, I suppose, suzerain, uh, Ruga, for further support. And he has provided another army with which to invade the Roman Empire. And so in uh, 432 AD, I believe, he invades the Western Roman Empire with his Hunnic army, and the Roman army just surrenders. They're so petrified that uh, they just give up. And so the Western Roman emperor and Gala Placidia, who is the regent for the young Valentinian III, they basically give up the empire to Aetius. <laughs> who becomes not just the Magister Militum of Gaul, but of what is left of the Western Roman state. So Italy, much of Gaul, and some parts of Spain. And so Aetius rules the Roman Empire de facto, right? Not de jure, but de facto. To the Romans, he is the, the Magister Militum, who is ruling via the authority of the emperor. But everybody knows that the emperor is a puppet. 
And basically, Aesha is, is ruling the place. And he is ruling the Western Roman Empire with not a Roman army, but a Hunnic army that had been supplied by the Hun king. And the Hun kings, of course, if you look at it from the Hun perspective, regards Aetius, of course, as their viceroy. So they think that the Western Romans have submitted to them. Well, they surrendered after all, right? So Aetius is their vassal who keeps sending tribute <laughs> that he's obliged to. And as long as that continues, they're happy. But then something terrible happens. Vleda, who was on very good terms with Aetius, is suddenly killed. And uh, Aetius, for whatever reason, fails to butter up Attila, who is the new Hun king. And so a lot of his Hun troops are withdrawn from him. And the Huns who decide to stay with Aetius, remember, Aetius's power base are the Huns, right? He does, his power base is not the Roman army or some other barbarian group. It's the Huns. But he loses a lot of that after Attila becomes king. And thereafter, he is in trouble. And the Huns who decide to stay with him, it appears, are Asada's enemies, Huns who are loyal to Blada. And so in order to uh, push back against Asada, whom he knows is going to come to punish him, Aetius forms an alliance with his previous enemies, the Visigoths and the, the Alans, who he had squashed with his uh, Hunnic army. But now they're sort of conscripted into his new Roman army. And so... Attila, of course, uh, was also offended by the fact that Aetius dared to propose his own nominee uh, for the sub-king of the Franks. He didn't appreciate that at all. And so Attila decides that Aetius needs to be taught a lesson. So he invades uh, with uh, the main Hunnic army. And Aetius finds himself in a bind because uh, instead of commanding uh, the Hun army, as he used to, he is now commanding a, a... a very shaky coalition of forces that are not loyal to him. His power base had always been the Huns, but now the bulk of the Huns are opposed to him. So he is in a very dangerous situation. And so that is the context of Attila's invasion of Gaul. Of course, uh, salacious gossip suggested that Honoria, who was the sister of <laughs> Emperor Valentinian III, proposed to Attila or some, you know, begged Attila to just save her from an unwanted marriage or something. And uh, Attila... Uh, supposedly demanded half of the Western Roman Empire as her dowry. Now, this is probably Eastern Roman gossip, right? Uh, and uh, has no bearing on reality. Another, you know, sort of uh, probably false story tells us that uh, Attila was bribed by King Gaiseric of the Vandals uh, to invade Gaul because uh, Gaiseric had treated his daughter-in-law, who was the daughter of the Visigothic king, in a very barbarous fashion. And uh, so... Gaiseric was afraid the Visigoths would invade his territory, which is ludicrous. The Visigoths don't have a navy. So how are they going to invade Vandal Africa? But um, supposedly he was afraid of the Goths, right? This is, of course, a story told by Jordanes, of course, who wants to up the Goths, right? Everything has to do with the Goths. So in order to attack the Visigoths and to do a favor to Gaiseric, Asada invades Gaul, which doesn't make any sense. Because the person that Asada is after is not the Visigothic king Theodoric. The guy that he wants to eliminate is Aetius because Aetius is a rebel, you see, <laughs> from Ashton's perspective. He is Blader's supporter, so he needs to be done away with. As well as it's the so Huns who are with Aetius, right? They're traitors. As well as the Huns who are with Aetius, as you highlighted there. I mean, it is so interesting how his fortunes change so rapidly with the Hunnic court. But something which is also so, so interesting is that... When you sometimes explore this period, you know, there's the label 
given to Aetius that he is the last Roman. And yet, as you've highlighted there, the power base of Aetius for so long hadn't been the Romans. It had been the Huns. He, there is so much to Aetius's story to kind of unpack here. He almost sounds like as if he was this mercenary general who got more and more favour with the Huns as the years went on. It's all important and such an interesting context to Attila's invasion of the West when you explore that character of Aetius. Yeah, so Aetius is kind of a liminal figure. I mean, he was from the border, uh, so the regions of the Roman Empire anyway. He, he is from that area where the population was largely non-Roman. And so he's somebody who is very familiar with people across the Danube. And uh, he obviously fitted in perfectly with the Huns. And uh, in fact, Thraustilla, the son-in-law, who was probably the son-in-law of Aetius, was a Hun too. He intermarried with Huns, and his bodyguard was made up of entirely of Huns. The only people that Aetius would, would trust with his life were the Huns. And of course, when Aetius is later assassinated by Emperor Valentinian III, the people who avenge him by killing Valentinian III are his Hunnic bodyguards. Optila and Thrustila are Hunnic officers who had served Aetius, and they avenged their patron by killing the Western Roman emperor. So the Huns were pretty, you know, close to Aetius, and he was close to them. The Huns probably regarded him as a Hun. It's absolutely incredible. Well, let's delve into this story of Attila versus Aetius. So Attila, he's got his eyes on Gaul and Aetius and crossing the Rhine. Where and how does he attack? Attila first invades uh, the territories that are settled by the Franks. I suppose that is the pretext for this invasion, that uh, he wants to settle this succession dispute amongst the Franks. So he conquers the Franks first. And then uh, he attacks the Alans. Right? So, so after Aetius had lost the support of the Huns, his main power base was then the Alans. The Alans are a people who are the closest to the Huns in terms of the way that they fight, etc. So they are very effective troops. And so uh, the, the, the power base of the Alans in Gaul was Orléans. And so the Huns besiege Orléans. And uh, Aetius is nowhere to be found. He refuses to engage the Huns. So the Huns have invaded central Gaul and Aetius' army and uh, the few Franks that are allied to uh, Aetius and also the Visigoths avoid battle and keep on retreating westward. And then the Alans put up one hell of a fight at Orléans. So the Huns besiege the city for ages and it just refuses to fall. So Attila notices that the campaigning season is about to end, so he decides to withdraw. Aetius is not... uh, coming out to fight, so he decides that uh, he's going to withdraw. Maybe another suggestion that has been made is that this is a feigned retreat. Right? Uh, Aetius refuses to fight, so a typical strategy adopted by steppe armies is to feign retreat to, in order to draw out an enemy which is uh, uh, taking evasive action into a decisive battle. And so the Huns start to withdraw, and they move eastward. And lo and behold, exactly the thing that uh, Asada probably wanted to happen happens. Aetius finally shows up with his Huns, Alans, Franks, and Goths. And uh, the Huns in Shalom uh, turn around and uh, engage Aetius' army in a pitched battle. And this is, of course, the the famous uh, Battle of Shalom, which apparently was an extraordinary bloodbath. So every account of the battle tells us that this was a truly hard-fought battle for both sides. Yes, yeah, so there's Shalon, isn't it? The Catalonian Plains or something like that, that kind of confusing yes, name, yeah, isn't right. it? But this is the, almost the great climax in terms of battles between 
Aetius and Attila. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and on not just the Tudors from History Hit, my guests and I run through the full gamut of human emotion and experience. From the heartbreak of the Virgin Queen, Elizabeth not being able to marry arguably the only man in the world she ever really wanted to marry, may have, for that reason, not married anyone else. To a prenatal battle of the sexes. A male and a female seed meet in the womb at conception, and whichever one is stronger determines the sex of the unborn child. From Lady Jane Grey facing her executioner. You can't help but feel just the utmost sympathy for this young girl. To why the Laughing Cavalier is, well, laughing. He strikes me as someone who goes off on a sort of swaggering booze-up. Subscribe now to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Eleanor Yanaga. And I'm Matt Lewis. And all this month on Gone Medieval, we're delving deep into the pivotal moments that shaped the destiny of England. The Battle of Hastings. Three men struggle for supremacy. The Saxon king, Harold Godwinson. The Viking warlord, Harold Hardrada. And the ambitious Norman duke, William the Conqueror. So join me, Eleanor Yanaga. And me, Matt Lewis, for Gone Medieval from History Hit. Listen and follow on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, Ancients listeners, I want to tell you about a podcast that I think you'll like. It's called Mysteries at the Museum from Travel Channel. It's narrated by my fellow History Hit podcast host, Don Wildman, and is direct audio from the hit TV show, Mysteries at the Museum. Now, on Mysteries at the Museum, Don travels across the US to find the objects that tell shocking stories of American history. You'll hear about the portrait linked to the first bank robbery in American history and about the failed invention from World War II that became one of the most popular toys for kids. What I love about this podcast is that it's a deep dive into specific objects, revealing the amazing stories they can tell about a person, about a place, or a time in history. It's the detail and laser focus that really resonates with me. Listen to Mysteries at the Museum wherever you get your podcasts. I'm guessing there might be more than one narrative of the battle, but what is the overarching story of how this battle, this great climax, unfolds? Yes, we are very unfortunate here because Priscus, who was the best historian from the middle of the 5th century, who was an eyewitness, did write a record of this battle, but it doesn't survive. Historians have assumed that uh, the version of the battle that we find in Jordanes, who is a much later source, is kind of a summary of Priscus's uh, uh, account of the Battle of Shalom, but it, it isn't, because we know that, because Jordanes claims that the group that won the battle were not the Romans, were not the, the Huns, it was the Goths. What a surprise. Yes, yeah. He gives us a complete, uh, you know, Gothified version of the story, which is totally unreliable. But um, unfortunately, that sort of uh, part of Priscus's history is missing. But we do have Priscus's account of Attila's subsequent invasion of Italy, and then his death after the campaign, 
And uh, Priscus tells us that uh, when Ashla died, the Huns declare, uh, his Hunnic subjects declare uh, at his funeral that uh, Ashla was the most fortunate of all men because he never faced defeat. He um, had subjugated both halves of the Roman Empire to tribute. So he went up, he, he died when he was at his peak. That's basically what the Huns say. And uh, the climax of Priscus's story is not actually the, the war in Gaul. It is actually the, the invasion of Italy by Attila. The war uh, between the Romans and Attila ends with that uh, Hunnic campaign into Italy. And uh, then, of course, after subjugating the Western Romans, Attila decides to invade the Eastern Roman Empire yet again uh, because the, the new emperor of the East, Marcion, had uh, refused to pay tribute. So Marcion, in his bravado, says that I'm never, I'm never going to pay this humiliating tribute again to the Huns. And then Attila, of course, uh, threatens an invasion. And uh, Marcion is incredibly worried. Uh, he feels that uh, this is going to be the end or something. And then, of course, God, according to Priscus, uh, gives this pious emperor uh, a vision in his dream, which uh, sort of kind of uh, prophesizes the, the death of Attila, right? And immediately afterwards, uh, Marcion is told that uh, Attila has been struck down by the Almighty. He's died in his sleep after a wedding feast. So Marcion uh, experiences divine uh, you know, salvation from the Huns. And so Attila is struck down, according to Priscus, not by Roman arms or by anybody. He is struck down by the Almighty himself. Right? So this is divine deliverance for the Roman Empire. So we know that in Priscus, Attila won the Battle of Shalom. Or, well, at least he wasn't defeated in Priscus's narrative. We know that from what he says afterwards, right? But Jordanus, of course, says that uh, the Goths you know, won the day, even though their king, Theodoric, died in the opening phases of the battle. And uh, what's interesting is, is that uh, every army that participated in the battle suffered horrendous losses. But the only army that survives intact after the battle is the Visigothic army. So if the Visigoths were heavily engaged then why on earth do they have most of their troops intact after the battle? Uh, presumably because they ran away. Uh, but, uh, of course, uh, uh, Jordanus changes the narrative uh, to uh, glorify his gods. But, so we have to disregard Jordanus, but we have to look at contemporary sources. And lo and behold, we do have contemporary sources that talk about the battle in a very cursory fashion, but they still do. And so the most important source is Prosper of Aquitaine, Prosper is a native Gaul. He was a contemporary of Aetius and Attila, so he is our best source. And uh, in his account of the Battle of Shalom, he says something very interesting. He says, there was enormous slaughter, and it appears, he says, that the Huns were not victorious. He doesn't say that the Romans won. He says, it appears that the Huns were not victorious because those of them that survived the slaughter lost any taste for further battle and went back. Now, that's a very, very ambiguous thing to say. When the Romans win battles, they let you know that they won battles. <laughs> Theodosius was defeated by Ruger, but he still boasted of, a, of an enormous military victory. Uh, regardless, they outright lie in many cases about victories in the 5th century. But here, Prosper uh, says something incredibly odd and says that uh, he's not really sure who won. So that's very interesting. And then there is another contemporary source, the Gallic Chronicle of 452. And this chronicle tells us that, again, there was huge slaughter and the Huns were defeated. So there is one source which actually says that uh, the Huns lost. And then there is another source 
the Gallic Chronicle of 511. Now, this is a slightly later source, but it actually harks back to very reliable contemporary sources, and it provides more specific information about the battle itself. So the Gallic Chronicle of 452, though more contemporary, says virtually nothing about the battle. But 511 gives us some interesting details, like the fact that uh, 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 Lauderic, who was a blood relative of Attila, died in this battle. But interestingly, that chronicle says nothing about who won, right? It says nothing about who was victorious. And then, of course, we have Priscus. Uh, his you know, version of events is lost, but then we can surmise from what he says thereafter that he, th- he actually thought that the Huns won, or at least were not defeated in Gaul. So we've got five contemporary sources. Am I counting them right? Yes. Uh, of which three are, uh, sorry, four so far, of which three think are unsure as to what happened, or the Huns probably won, or the, the Romans you know, didn't lose, or the Huns didn't win. Possibly nobody really knows. One source which says uh, that the Huns won, that's uh, sorry, the, the, the Romans won, and then there is another source called Hydatius, who is a, a Roman bishop in Spain. Now, Hydatius is hopeless because he, whenever he talks about anything that happens outside of Spain, he is so wrong. So, for example, later he says that uh, uh, the Eastern Roman Emperor Martian sent a general called Aetius to invade the Huns in their own territory in the Danube. Now, Priscus and everybody else in the Eastern Roman Empire has just told us that but the Eastern Romans had lost territory south of the Danube to the Huns, and they never make it beyond the Danube. So how on earth would an Eastern Roman army invade the Hun heartland under the Emperor Martian? Priscus flatly denies that it well, doesn't even say anything of the sort happened, and yet Hydatius says that there is this fictitious invasion of the Hunnic Empire core territories by Aetius, an Eastern Roman general. Aetius is a Western Roman general, so this guy is completely all over the place. And he gives us a very sort of fictitious account of the Battle of Shalong and says that you know, hundreds of thousands of you know, men fought and the Huns were vanquished. So two sources say that the Huns were beaten. Three sources say that either it was a draw, some kind of a draw or the Huns won. And what are we to make of this? We have to note who was in possession of the battlefield after the battle was over. That's the best way to figure out who won the battle. Now... Jordanes, despite all the problems in his text, does preserve information about what happened after the battle. Right? So he says, Aetius was now afraid that if he completely destroyed the Huns, the Visigoths would become too powerful and he wouldn't be able to control them. So he wanted the Huns to survive in order to use them as a counterweight against the Visigoths. So he persuades the Visigothic king, the young prince uh, Thoriswood, to return home to Toulouse. And he also persuades the Franks to bolt as well. And then he withdraws himself. So every part of uh, Aisha's army withdraws from the battlefield and uh, the Huns are left in possession of it. And we know that that is the case because, of course, the only archaeological remain that uh, we can associate with the battle is a honey cauldron that was discovered in its vicinity. And that probably was a funeral vestment which was used in the, the funeral of uh, Lauderic, who was uh, Attila's cousin, blood relative, who died during the battle. So the Huns were in no hurry to leave. They held an elaborate funeral on the site of battle before they left. So they had possession of the battlefield, which then implies that uh, they probably won the battle.
Then later, the following year, Ashley invades Italy, and Aetius is unable to do anything about it. He in fact tells the Western Roman Emperor, Valentinian III, that he should abandon Italy altogether, because we can't defend Italy at all. He has no troops. Uh, so if he had been victorious the, uh, the previous year, then, uh, well, this obviously should not happen. And then there is another clue, and that is Jordanes, of all people, tells us that the very next year, the Huns invaded Gaul again. <sighs> so there is another army of Huns that are invading Gaul at the same time that uh, was slightly after the, the, the Hunnic invasion of Italy. And so what is this Hunnic army doing in Gaul? And this army manages to penetrate all the way to the Loire. That's further to the west of Shalom, right? Uh, so if the Huns had lost the battle, what on earth is the Hunnic army doing west of Shalom on the Loire, right? And so Jordanes then again tells us a ridiculous story about how the Visigothic king defeated the Huns. But then he says something completely bizarre. He says, oh, by the way, the Gothic king used the Alans to beat the Huns. He didn't use any Goths. So again, I mean, he's all over the place. But uh, if we discount all of the nonsense and uh, just accept the tidbits of information that he provides about where the Huns were and uh, what they were doing, then I think it, it is pretty clear that uh, Aetius lost the battle. And thereafter, he was no longer able to protect Roman territories from uh, Hunnic invasions. And following this massive campaign, and so well described by you there, Hyunjin is such a fascinating part of late antiquity. Aetius has nevertheless escaped with his life, despite being, you know, that almost a personal enemy, defier of Attila now. Will he ever face Attila again, or is that really the last time that they personally come to blows on the battlefield? Yes, what's interesting is that uh, later tradition accuses Aetius of treachery. So, this is presumably from uh, Roman sources that are either contemporary or slightly later, that are hostile to Aetius, obviously. Uh, but uh, they, they accuse Aetius of treachery and of conspiring with the Huns. Now, we must understand that uh, Aetius, his power base had always been the Huns. So without the Huns, he has no place anymore in Gaul or anywhere else. Uh, so now there is no way to prove this. But uh, all those stories about, you know, political machinations, you know, Jordan is saying that, oh, Aetius was trying to negotiate with the Huns during the battle, after the battle. Maybe that's indeed what was happening. Maybe that's what he tried to do. And he tries to say to Attila that, look, you know, I'm sorry about all of this, you know, what happened. It was not my intention to rebel. Let's have peace and uh, you know, bygones be bygones. Was that what was happening? Maybe, maybe not. Who knows? Uh, but... Uh, there are all Hunnic troops who are sort of uh, loitering about in Gaul after the battle. What on earth were they, were they doing there? Uh, and uh, if you look at the area that this uh, Hunnic army uh, uh, is moving around in, this is the original power base of Aetius. So it's that part of Gaul that formed the, the core territory of Aetius. And that's where this uh, residual Hunnic army is operating in. Which makes you wonder what on earth is going on here. And uh, that Aetius does absolutely nothing uh, to defend Italy from another Hunnic invasion the, the following year. That's also telling. Uh, one possibility might be that his army was so weakened that he could do nothing. That's probably true. Uh, but uh, then secondly, why didn't he even send a token force to the emperor to do something about this? He doesn't do anything to protect Italy. Was it because he had actually 
uh, submission to Azure again and uh, somehow managed to <laughs> win back some kind of recognition. Who knows, right? So this is a very murky uh, sort of period. And uh, uh, the fact that uh, Aetius is accused of treachery by virtually every source thereafter is kind of telling. But anyway, who knows? That is not something that I think we could ever figure out uh, with any uh, accuracy. Well, as we start to near the end of Attila's story, Hyunjin, you've mentioned already and you've hinted at that invasion of Italy and also Marcian. So what do we know about these last few years of Attila's reign? Attila invades Italy. He's able to capture uh, most of the major cities in northern Italy, but he doesn't march on Rome or Ravenna, which is the which is, which is where the emperor is. Uh, he is visited by the Pope, obviously, <laughs> brings a hefty tribute, and then he just leaves, right, after receiving the submission of the Romans. He leaves a sort of <laughs> mosaic painting, which supposedly depicted the Roman emperors, you know, sort of pouring a cold tribute, you know, before his feet or something like this, as a sort of memento of his sort of conquest. And then goes back to his, uh, his home territory. Now, why did he leave without uh, sacking Ravenna? Well, probably because his army had been struck by a plague. So his army was struck by plague, and uh, that part of northern Italy was, is notorious uh, for these sorts of things. So his army was in bad shape, so he returns to winter quarters in Hungary. And then, of course, uh, he's about to launch another invasion of the Eastern Roman Empire, and then he, uh, well, according to the sources that we have, married another woman <laughs> called Ildiko. Uh, he uh, overexerted himself after drinking too much. So he suffered from a ruptured vein. <laughs> and uh, that blood sort of uh, clogged his system and he suffocated to death. This is another story that is told, right? Uh, so whether that's, that's true or that's not... That's the story, it's, isn't it? Yeah. It's the story of him dying from a nosebleed, isn't it? When people Yes, simplified. basically, yes, yes. So he was a bit too sort of uppity while he was having sex, I suppose. He was already a fairly old man by the stage in his uh, early 50s or something, and he just overdid it, right? So, and so uh, he died. And that was the end of the career of uh, uh, the, uh, the scourge of God, apparently. And quite an inglorious way to sort of end one's career, I suppose, but uh, that's what the Romans tell us. An interesting end, to say, to the story of the scourge of God. And, it, you know, it, you, I guess you have to think about how true it really is, or if it is a later edition. However... What is really fascinating is, and you see it time and time again, whether it's Alexander or whoever, these titanic monarchs, when they die, and when they die unexpectedly, that complete chaos that erupts as that vacuum emerges. I mean, Hyunjin, Attila is dead. What is this chaos that immediately grips this massive empire? So Attila came to the throne uh, by illegal means, right? So he assassinated his own brother and usurped the throne. So when he dies, and to make things worse, he said nothing about the succession. He suddenly died. That is clear. The path to the throne is open to basically all of his sons and probably his other relatives as well. And so initially there are two candidates. Uh, of course, the, the crown prince, uh, the king of the east, Elok, of course, is the the most favoured person to take the throne. He's supported by the Akkad Siri, who are his fief, and a host of other princes, including the Hanikapuinshid uh, sub-king of the Goths, right? a, a guy called Thorismud, who is another you know, Hun prince, but he's governing the, uh, the Goths. So they support Elok, the crown prince. But then the Gepids, who had been Attila's power base before he rose to the throne, 
They support another son of uh, Attila called Gizmos. And uh, Gizmos is the son-in-law of the sub-king of the Gepids, Arderic. So uh, Arderic wants to push his son-in-law uh, and uh, try to make him the king. And so armies start to assemble on either side. And at the Battle of Nedo, one year after the death of Attila, there is a colossal battle between these uh, Western and Eastern factions. And uh, Elok, the crown prince, is killed during this battle. Now, but the problem is, is that uh, the bloodshed was uh, so catastrophic uh, that uh, the winners, uh, Gizmos and Alderic, they failed to impose any kind of order on uh, what is left of the Hunnic Empire thereafter. The eastern territories of uh, the Huns is rapidly taken over by uh, two brothers, uh, two remaining sons of Asada, Ernok and Dengizhik. And in the west, another Hunnic prince called Valamer. Now, Jordanes claims that he is a pure Gothic king and uh, deliberately separates uh, Valamer from another guy called Balamber, the same name. But uh, Jordanes knows that uh, he's the king of the Huns. It's the same person, but he wants to separate the Goths from the Huns, you see, and he wants to, because he wants to suppress the history of the, the Goths being ruled by the Huns. He doesn't want to make it sound as if the, the ruling dynasty of the Goths is actually Hunnic. So he changes the genealogy. He separates one Huno-Gothic king called Valamer into two individuals, and he places the Hunnic uh, uh, Valamer in the 4th century and uh, does away with him, basically. But uh, Peter Heather, of course, who is one of the, uh, the most renowned history and historians of this period, has uh, conclusively proven that these, are, these two individuals are actually one person. And, of course, uh, Balamer is the king of the Huns, but he's also king of the Goths. So what's happening here? Well, after this colossal battle at Nedo, Gizmos apparently uh, was a failure. Right? So he does have a son called Mundo, who later becomes a co-king of the Gepids, but he himself just disappears from the picture entirely. And so does Arduric. They both disappear. And the guy who is in charge appears to be Volumer. So during the Battle of Nedo, Elok dies, and also the, the Hun king of the Goths, Thorismund, also dies in that, during that battle. And so Volumer you know, sort of... Uh, slips into, effortlessly slips into this pearl vacuum and uh, declares himself king of the Huns. Right? So he takes control of much of this Western territory in Hungary and uh, claims that he is now the ruler of the Huns. But of course, uh, Dengizhik and Ernok is having none of it. <laughs> so uh, Dengizhik is uh, equipped with an army by his brother Ernok and sent westward to fight Volomer. And Volomer is ambushed and surprised by Dengizhik and dies. But Jordanes tells us that uh, Valamer was surprised, and he wasn't even in the company of his other brothers. But even after Valamer is killed, his Goths, you know, they just thrash everybody and uh, repel the, the, the Huns, and uh, it ends in a great Gothic victory. Uh, but right after that battle, all the Goths are fighting under the Huns now. So Dengizhik, right after he's uh, done away with Valamer, invades the Eastern Roman Empire. But he doesn't have many Hun troops with him. Basically, the entirety of his army is are made up of Goths. Who are these Goths? They're, of course, Valamer's Goths. That's, uh, he's just absorbed into his army again. So this is how Jordanes lies you know, repeatedly. Uh, if you look at Priscus, uh, there is this very entertaining passage where Dengizhik uh, decides to invade the Eastern Roman Empire. Ernok tells him no, but he does it anyway.
And then he invades, and then the Eastern Romans send a Hunnic officer by the name of Chokar into the Hunnic camp. And this Hunnic officer, who is working for the Romans, goes to the Goths and tells them, hey, look, you've suffered so many humiliations under the Huns. Remember this that the, that the Huns did to you? Remember that thing that the Huns did to you? And the, the Goths are enraged after remembering all the humiliation that they've been suffering and all the taxes that they had to pay. And the taxes really is that breaks the camel's back, right? So they're really, really offended by the taxes. So they rebel. <laughs> and, uh, so the, uh, the entire invasion ends in a fiasco. And later, Dengizik is murdered. Nobody knows how, but he ends up dying. And then somebody brings a severed head uh, to Constantinople. So uh, the head of Attila the Hun is displayed in the streets of Constantinople. And the guy who actually ends up securing his head, as if this is uh, poetic justice, is the, uh, is the guy who, whose father was killed by Attila <laughs> in the War of 447. So I believe the father is Ariobindus, a uh, Roman general who fought to the bitter end at Uchus and was killed by Attila. Uh, his son manages to secure the severed head of Attila's son. <laughs> so uh, he avenged his father. Right? Nobody really knows how, but uh, it's an interesting sort of uh, tidbit, I suppose, of history. Wow, well, there you go. Oh, you said that poetic justice right there, or quite horrible poetic justice, if we're being honest. Hyunjin, this has been absolutely fascinating. I'm guessing, therefore, Attila's legacy, as those years progress, you've now seen that fragmentation of the Hunnic Empire recurring following his death. Is this when Attila's legacy, you know, his reputation really starts going to that next level and it will evolve more and more and more over the following centuries? where he not only is this figure who seems to oversee the Hunnic Empire in the West, the European Huns, their empire at Zenith, but also as this formidable, unbeaten, to an extent, conqueror. Is it in these immediate years and then centuries following his death that his legacy as the scourge of God really develops? Yeah, so after the death of Ashla, we don't really hear much about him. And... Uh, of course, he is a major figure who is remembered in Roman historical sources, but uh, he is not mythologized until much, much later, in, surprisingly in the High Middle Ages. So it is after the 11th century that we finally encounter the mythologized Attila. And we also uh, encounter him, surprisingly, not in the context of the Greco-Roman sort of literary tradition, but in the Germanic tradition, in the Nibelungen Lied, and of course in the Norse sagas. In the Norse sagas, he is depicted unfavorably as this very sort of cruel figure who is then punished by his wife, Gudrun. And uh, his, the story of Asler is then mixed up with uh, other sort of folk tales. And so it's, it becomes very, very mythologized. And then, of course, uh, in the Germanic tradition, he is this very noble but rather indecisive king, Edsel, uh, who is sort of uh, pushed around by his wife, Kriemhild. <laughs> so uh, there is that kind of an image of him as a noble but kind of an indecisive monarch. And then in Hungary, he is mythologized yet again as sort of the founder of their nation. So the Hungarian kings, the, the Arpad uh, kings of Hungary, claim that they are the patrilineal descendants of Attila the Hun. Whether that's true or not, who knows? But uh, that's what they claim. And so Attila becomes the founding father of Hungary in the, the Hungarian uh, sort of uh, national myth. That's why in Hungary, of course, you find a lot of people named Attila. Even an airport is, is named Attila something, right? It's not named after the Attila, but it's another Attila who was named after Attila, the famous poet. But uh, so 
he becomes mythologized there. And then it's only really uh, in early modern times that uh, he takes on this additional image of the Asiatic savage. Right? Uh, when uh, racial theories start to become very popular in the 19th century, Astor becomes the, uh, the symbol of the, the Asiatic uh, sort of barbarian horde that threatens, threatens European civilization. And uh, the Battle of Shalom then takes on an, an additional significance, not as some great sort of you know, ancient battle that was fought between the Romans and the Huns, but uh, as the battle that saved civilization itself. As if, uh, if uh, Attila had won, uh, then uh, the, the course of history would have changed. But as we have just uh, discussed, he probably did win. And regardless of whether he won or lost, the trajectory of the future history of uh, Europe would not have changed. Because if you look at the battlefield, if you look at the composition of the armies that faced each other on the battlefield of Shalom, they were almost identical. On Aisha's side, you've got Huns, Alans, Goths, and Franks. On uh, the, the Hunnic side, under Rasulah, you've got Huns, Alans, Goths, Gepids, and Franks. It's identical. They look the same. So regardless of who's winning, and it's not pagan versus Christian either, because uh, on the, the Hunnic side, there are plenty of Christians, on the, uh, the Roman side, there were also plenty of pagans. So uh, nothing really uh, changed because of the Battle of Shalom, but it takes on this mythical significance as the battle that saved Western civilization. And I guess also that point to highlight there, Hingin, that in Aetius' army, there were almost, if any, there were next to no Romans at all. Well, I mean, there were actually, the, sorry, I missed out the Romans. Sorry about that. So oh, well, there, there were we actually okay, some Romans in his army, but this was a very insignificant uh, portion of the army. Most of the sources agree that they didn't do much. Well, Jordanes massively downplays the role of the Romans. Maybe they played a little bit uh, more of a significant role, who knows, but they're barely mentioned. And in Ashla's army, believe it or not, there were also Romans as well. The Bagaudai, you know, those Gallo-Roman uh, rebels who had been suppressed by Aetius, their leaders and their, uh, the surviving remnants of those rebels fled to Attila and joined Attila's army. So, in other words, the composition of both armies were exactly the same, which is mind-boggling. This is what late antiquity is, I suppose. Uh, Europe was already changing and uh, was uh, entering, I suppose, the Middle Ages already. Mind-boggling and a great way for us to completely wrap up today's episode then, Hyunjin. This has been absolutely brilliant. Last but certainly not least, you have written a book which focuses in on Attila, but also so much more than Attila. It is called? The Huns, Rome and the Birth of Europe. This was published in 2013. And uh, I wrote another book on the Huns in 2016, I believe. That's more of a general history of the Huns. Uh, not just the European Huns, but uh, the White Huns and other Huns that... Uh, we mentioned at the beginning of this talk. Absolutely. Well, Hyunjin, always a pleasure having you on the podcast. And it just goes for me to say thank you so much for taking the time to come back on today. It was a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Well, there you go. There was Professor Hyunjin Kim wrapping up our special mega episode all about Attila the Hun. I hope you've enjoyed both parts. Now, last things from me, you know what I'm going to say. If you have enjoyed this special mega episode, or indeed any other Ancients episodes, well, 
You know what you can do to help us out? You can leave us a lovely rating on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts from. It really helps us as we continue to grow this podcast to even greater heights and to give incredible academics like Hyunjin the spotlight that they deserve for the years of research they've committed to these particular areas of antiquity. But that's enough from me, and I will see you in the next episode. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Ancients. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code ANCIENTS at checkout.